This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship's Summer Leadership Training back in 2020. The theme that year was Designed, where they studied the creation, fall, and redemption of God's beautiful design. We hope you find this encouraging. So, uh, tonight we are going to talk about dominion. Um, And probably no many, not many other people on our staff is hopefully qualified to talk about Dominion as myself, um, being an environmental science major at Drake University. Um, And so we're not going to get into tons of nitty-gritty stuff right here, right now, tonight. Um, There's so much I wish I could talk about. I I grew up um, uh, in Boy Scouts, going camping all the time. Uh, I dropped out by, after I got out of life. I was just like, uh, I'm bored now. But, but I loved Boy Scouts, you know, and um, going to high school was really sweet. Uh, and in my school district, there was a high school called the School of Environmental Studies for juniors and seniors. And so I, it was nicknamed the Zoo School because it was on campus of the Minnesota Zoo. And you could go to the zoo whenever you wanted to for your class if it pertained to your class. So, so I went there and went to the zoo for my junior and senior year of high school. Um, going to college, I naturally just wanted to get involved in environmental studies, and that was my major in college. And since college, I've been working in campus ministry ever since. So if that just kind of shows you what a major can do, you know, God will use your faithfulness and your ability to learn that you're demonstrating now in college for whatever he has for you afterwards. So um, if you have your Bible, you can open up. We're going to go uh, start in Genesis. And this is such a huge topic that we could literally make this topic a whole three summers worth of stuff. And I'm going to hope to condense this down into the essentials for us tonight. So why don't we read, uh, we'll start in Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image, He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Let's ask God to bless our time. Father, uh, God, I just acknowledge to you, um, I, I don't have the ability to communicate everything that you would um, say about this topic tonight. God, I um, am not qualified to speak on my own. God, that your spirit um, qualifies us, Lord. God, that your uh, redemption in Christ, God, that through that we become qualified to serve in your kingdom. Um, God, and I just thank you so much that that's true, God, that uh, you can uh, use the least among us, God, um, God, that you uh, work in our midst, God. We just thank you so much and praise you for how uh, glorious you are. God, I pray you would uh, help us tonight just to, in a small way, get a glimpse for what dominion looks like um, today. Just pray for this in your name. Amen. In 1998, there's this guy, his name is Larry Freustad. 
I'm probably butchering the last name, Larry Freustad, and he sent an email out to about 200 people um, saying something. And I just want you to kind of imagine this. Imagine if uh, I were to send you all an email, which actually I did yesterday. I'm the one who sends out the all-campus fellowship emails for SLT. Um, And let's imagine I wrote at the end of that email, I'm going to go break into a couple cars now. The funny thing is, I actually did write that. Just kidding. (laughs) I did not write that in the email. Um, But if I were to have written that in an email sent to everyone here, uh, hopefully some of you would have caught that and called the police. Well, Larry, in 1998, he wrote an email to about 200 people confessing to murdering his five-year-old daughter you know, about three years prior to this. And of those 200 people, I'm sure some people didn't answer. Some people went to junk mail or whatever. You send an email to 200 people. It's like, uh, but only three people reported this to the authorities out of 200. And this is commonly known as the bystander effect. And if you kind of look out there in, you know, stories and stuff like that, some bystander effect stories have been exaggerated a little bit, but it is a very real thing. Uh, two men by the name of Darley and Latane uh, did a research study where they called people and made hoax, emer- you know, hoax emergency phone calls. And 85% of the people who thought that they were the only ones who got the call responded. Those who thought that there was at least one other person who got this call, about 62% of those people helped this fake hoax emergency phone call. But for those who thought that like four or more people got this same call, uh, only 30-some percent acted on it. And what we can see when we think about like this, this effect is that when our eyes are on other people, when our eyes are on kind of a, there's a problem and then our eyes are looking around to other people, we are less likely to act. We are less likely to take any kind of responsibility for what's going on. We start thinking, well, um, this isn't personally affecting me, or maybe there's someone else who's going to take care of this problem or that problem, and this can, you know, this doesn't need to play out in drastic situations. This can just be, well, maybe uh, the floor needs vacuumed, and there's like 80 of us here, and we all just kind of look around at each other like, oh, who's going to vacuum the floor? Um, and it becomes easy to pass off responsibility with the more people that there are, because our eyes are on each other. And my hope is that tonight, that we would realize our responsibility to take dominion in this earth with our eyes focused on heaven, with our eyes focused on Christ, to see how he's done it. And my goal is that by the end of tonight, that we would see how dominion, it is appointed to mankind, how dominion has been abused by mankind, and how dominion is realized and actualized in the kindest man ever. So my first point about dominion is that dominion has been appointed to mankind, that God appointed us to rule over all of creation. And in Genesis 126, it says, you know, then God said, let us make man in our image. And this word for man, the Hebrew word is adam, which could also mean Adam. So God names him Adam, but he also uses this word. There's like a double meaning here in times in Genesis, but this specific meaning it is meant to mean all of mankind. How can, how can we know that? How, does, how do we know Adam here means all of mankind? 
Well, it says, they will rule the fish of the sea. They. And then 27, it says, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so the man, you know, this Adam, it is meant to resemble all of us. That all of mankind has been appointed by God to do what? To rule. And this rule is as to rule over the fish of the sea, that we would have dominion over the earth. And this is a good thing according to God. This is his design. This is how he invented it in the beginning. And the word for rule, I want you to take this word and I want you to store it somewhere, okay? Lock it away in your brain. The word, the Hebrew word for rule is rada. Can you say that with me? Rada. Rada. Okay? Now, you're probably also thinking ra-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Or like King George, you know, from Hamilton. Ra-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay. Yeah, now we all got in our head. King George, ruler, Rada, you know? Okay, so Rada is rule, and it means to exercise authority. And King Solomon, he exercised authority or dominion over, over the nation of Israel. Um, in 1 Kings 4, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 24, it says, For he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tiphsah to Gaza, and over all the kings west of the, of the Euphrates. He had peace on all his surrounding borders. Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own vine and his own fig tree. And this is like a taste of the kind of dominion God was after. That this dominion, it resulted in peace for the entire nation. And not only that, but, but you think about the story of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba comes to see this glory of the kingdom of Israel. And she ends up putting her trust and faith in the God of Israel. And she becomes right. She becomes right with God. And so 1 Kings 4 shows us how rule can relate to a king or a queen, someone in this position of authority who has dominion over kingdoms. It can also be meant to, in a lesser form as just maybe even a supervisor. Uh, Solomon, in chapter 5, says Solomon had 70,000 porters and 80,000 stonecutters in the mountain, not including his 3,300 deputies in charge of the work. They supervised, or radad, the people doing the work. So this idea of rule, it just means to exercise authority over. And so God, he appointed us to rule over all of creation, and he appointed us to rule over all of creation as his representative. It says he made us in his image, in his likeness, to rule. And so our rule over creation is to imitate his rule over creation. We talked about this two weeks ago when we talked about work and rest. And so I'm just going to kind of really give the bird's eye view of this one more time. So, so how does God rule this earth? How does God rule the universe? Well, he rules by his authority. He speaks and it happens. Just the very word of God needs to be said and, and it happens. He made, the, he made the whole universe, all of creation, just by speaking it into existence. Uh, he exercises his, his rule and his reign through his control. He holds the universe in the palm of his hand. Nothing happens apart from God. 
And he exercises his rule and dominion over the whole universe through his presence. He, he is everywhere. The Spirit of God, you, you cannot, you, the highest of high, the lowest of low, God, God is everywhere. There's no bit of creation that exists apart from him. And so God, he appoints man to rule over creation in his image and in his likeness. And so what we see in Genesis is that, well, he tells Adam to name the animals, to exercise control or authority, to name the animals. You know, if you were to name uh, your, your child, and, you know, we talked about this, you, you expect to name your child. Your doctor who, gives, who delivers the baby doesn't name the child. You name the child. And it says in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. And so Adam was meant to name, Adam and Eve were meant to name the animals. They had a measure of authority to name it. Uh, if you have a pet, you know, you have the authority to name that pet. When we got nuggets, uh, by, okay, so nuggets is a chihuahua that we have in our, in, in our household. And nuggets, we got her from the ARL. Um, and her name that they gave her was Leah. And Dina did not like that name. So when we brought Leah into our household, Dina began the search for, what is, what is the name I want to call you? Um, and she landed on Nuggets. So Nuggets is, is our pet chihuahua. Um, and that's appropriate because Nuggets belongs to us. We, we can name Nuggets whatever we want to. We didn't go up to Nuggets and ask her, hey, what, what, we, what do you want us to call you? Woof, woof. Oh, okay. Woof. Hi, woof. No, we named her Nuggets because we wanted to name her Nuggets, and she looks like a nugget, okay? Um, but you see this with children. You know, children will name their favorite toys, even before they can use words. They'll, like, have their own language. They'll call out for, like, a bottle, and they'll call it a baba, you know? <laughs> and they're, they're exercising a measure of authority. Like, that's their bottle, you know? Uh, baba, you know, give me my bottle, <laughs> Um, so presence, Adam exercises, or I'm sorry, authority. Adam exercises authority. The second thing he exercises is presence. God told him to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. His plan was that the, that the image and likeness of God in Adam and Eve would go over the whole planet, that the earth would be, would be filled with God's image over all of it that there, it would be, and this is a good thing, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, that the presence of mankind would be over the whole planet. And so many topics we've covered already in this whole design series have really hit on this, you know, like uh, marriage and family and gender and work and rest and so, so many things. But tonight, we're going to focus on the other part, What's the, third, the last thing in the list? To subdue it. And so Adam was told to subdue a garden that was already declared very good. Get that? He was, he was told to, to, to subdue a garden that God was already going to declare this is very good. And so to control something or subdue something, the word is kabash. 
We, this, it doesn't take a, we, we understand what kibosh is. If you put the kibosh on something, it's like you've exercised your control over that situation. You put the kibosh on that. And so Adam was meant to exercise control and subdue the garden and, and the creation that God had made. And this was a good thing. And we know that there are, there are probably ways that today that this happens that are not meant to happen. But in the beginning, God's original design was that Adam would exercise and subdue the earth according to his will and, and purpose, according to God's will and God's purpose, to bring it into servitude for the purpose of glorifying God and the flourishing of mankind. And there's two primary commands through which Adam was to do this. In Genesis 2.15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Those are the two primary ways that Adam was to interact with the garden, to subdue it, to work it and to watch over it. And to work the garden, what that means is that everything in God's creation, all of it, we should see it as good to develop the resources in the garden. That the whole earth, its resources, should be developed for the purpose of human flourishing. That this is a morally good thing to do. Whether those resources be finite or whether those resources be uh, ones that kind of come back and, and are replenished every so often. That we should look to uh, develop those resources for the purpose of human flourishing and glorifying God. To work the garden. The second one is, it says, to keep it or to watch over it, depending on your translation. And so not only should we seek the development of earth's resources, that that's a good thing, but we should seek the, de- the conservation and preservation of God's garden for human flourishing as well. There's, you know, we, we, you can look out through the rest of, you know, the Old Testament. God, it was important that his people took care of the land. There was a Sabbath for the land every seven years. Every seven years, you don't plant crops. You give the land a break. The animals, when people took their Sabbath on the seventh day, the animals got a Sabbath rest as well. And in Deuteronomy 25, 4, the command was given, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. That while the animals work, you should feed them. You should care for your animals. Proverbs 12, 10, the righteous cares about his animal's health, but even the merciful acts of the wicked are cruel. And it was meant that Adam and Eve would would take care of and keep the garden, that there would be a preserving effect on God's world. And in today's lingo, uh, there's this debate between conservationists and preservationists. Conservationists would say all of God's resources, all all of the whole world, uh, we should use it for, for humankind. It's all meant for us, and we should seek to develop as much of it as we can and then conserve whatever is wisely. We should be able to have some wise use here. And a preservationist would say, you know, we should have specific areas that we don't even touch. No roads at all. We need to maximize the biodiversity in a certain area by lessening human impact in that area. And I would say both conservation and preservation can advance human flourishing. 
you know? When we seek to conserve things, wise use, yes, that's, that's helpful, but, but there should be areas that we say, you know what, we need to leave this area probably untouched because we need to find out all the things in there that God has given us for medicine, for technology, all the things that, that can actually help human flourishing. If we need to have different areas where maybe we preserve the natural the, or maximal biodiversity. So I would say both of these, you know, we can, we can have God's wisdom, we can use God's wisdom to think what's the best in each situation. But the command to keep the garden means that we're thinking about more than ourselves, that we're loving our neighbors, we love ourselves, and we think about the generations to come, and we have a preserving effect on the garden that keeps it. And the question is, well, how do we rule then? If, if this is what we're supposed to do, exercise authority, presence, and control, how do we do that? God's plan from the beginning was that we would do it with His wisdom, with His discernment of what's right and wrong. Uh, Solomon, he, he saw this need, okay? In 1 Kings 3.9, it says, So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon, he understood that like, okay, if I'm going to have dominion, I, I don't know how to run a kingdom or anything like this. And at the beginning, he says, God, I need you to tell me what's right, what's wrong, to d- discern between good and evil. And this is the way God set it up from the beginning in the garden. In Genesis 2.16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. And so God told him, eat of all the trees except for that one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that, okay? And there's three different, like, interpretations of of what that could mean. Um, One is that uh, this represented sexual knowledge. That prior to this, they didn't even know they were naked, you know? But if you think about it, okay, they're commanded to multiply, to fill the earth, to be fruitful. I can't think of any way that Adam and Eve could accomplish that without sex, you know? So it seems like sex was good. It was in the original creation. Sex is not a consequence of the fall. You know, this is not about sexual knowledge. Uh, Another interpretation says that this is about omniscience. That when Adam and Eve took the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it, was, it represented omniscience. But I don't think that's true either. Like, Adam and Eve aren't, like, spouting off equals MC squared or, like, coming to deep knowledge truths about who they are and their offense against God. No, they cover themselves up in shame, you know? And what this tree represents, what, by and large, most people say what this tree represents is the ability and power to determine what is good and what is evil. So in telling them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's telling them, you know what? Do not claim the ability and the power to determine what is good and evil. Tell you what, let's go on long walks in the garden. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how to rule. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll let you in. I know it all. I know what everything is, and I know how it should be used, and I know it how, how it's designed for the good and human, you know, flourishing of humankind and for my glory. 
let's just walk. Let's go on a walk and I'll tell you. It'll take a long time, but we got, we got a lot of time. I think that's the way it was meant to be. And all this went horribly wrong, we all know, um, is that today we can see that dominion, it is abused by mankind. So dominion, not only was it uh, given and appropriated to mankind, but dominion, it is now, it is abused by mankind. And we have decided to rule according to our own ability and power. This is, this is at the seed of the abuse of our, in our world, that we have decided to rule according to our own ability and power. In Genesis 3, the serpent lies to Eve. He says, no, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And this, this is where it all went wrong, where Adam and Eve asserted their own ability and power to determine what is good and what is evil. And they cut God out. They said, no, we're going to figure out ourselves. J.I. Packer says, original sin was a lust after self-sufficient knowledge, a craving to shake off all external authority and work things out for himself. And this is what happened. And this is what we've all done. We've all asserted our own ability, our own authority to determine what's right and wrong. And the sad thing is we haven't even held our, our own standard. And the consequences of the fall, I'm just going to get into the, the consequences for the land. It, it has affected the entire universe. The consequences of Adam and Eve's decision here, it has affected all, it has affected all of creation. Genesis 3 says, The ground is cursed because of you, and you will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And God's creation, it was beautiful, and it was useful. Every part of it was, it was beautiful, and it was useful for mankind and for glorifying God. And now as a consequence of the fall, it says there are thorns and thistles. There are now intermixed with the beauty and usefulness of creation. There's danger, there is sickness, and there's death. Lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. The, we were not meant to fear those things in the beginning. In the beginning, it was not meant to be that way. But now, intermixed with the beauty of God's creation, there are these elements where we have snakes with venom that kill. And sometimes we actually think it's kind of exciting, okay? I did this stupid thing in high school where um, I was on a school trip, and so never do this, okay? I was on a school trip in the Florida Everglades, and we were told, hey, all the alligators, they, they recently had a meal. And I was like, oh, okay. And there's part of this, you know, it's this alluring. It's like thinking, I wonder what it would be like to, to pet a wild alligator. And so we get back from our boat ride, you know, we're walking on the dock back to the shore, and I see this alligator coming underneath the dock right as I'm walking over it. And I get this idea like, what if I pet the alligator? So, so I lay down on my stomach and the alligator goes halfway by and I go down and pet it and my teacher looks at me like he's 
like his eyes are bugging out. He's like, what are you doing? And looking back, I was very wrong to do that. I could have had, I could have been, my life could have been done with, and that teacher probably would have lost their job. Um, but, but God's beauty in creation is now intermixed, intermingled. It is, there's danger in here. There are thorns and there are thistles, and working it is hard. Verse 19 says, you will eat the bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you are taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. And what we see here is that mankind's task of taking dominion, of subduing the earth, it is now, oh, it is, you could almost call it impossibly difficult. You'll eat bread, but work will be really hard now. It's going to be so painful. And so the consequences of why this is impossibly difficult now is because sin, it has infected every part, every nook and cranny of creation. There are thorns and there are thistles, and we, are, we have cut ourselves off from the wisdom of God. By choosing, you know, in, in this tree to take for ourselves their own definitions, declaring what we know to be right, we have cut ourselves off from the one who knows everything about everything in this world. And so our task is impossibly difficult. Why is it difficult? Because we have limited knowledge. You know, our, our knowledge, our understanding, it is only so big. I can only read so many books. I can only look at so many things in creation. Um, and the important thing to know is that knowing the nature of a thing is the first step to putting it in correct order, to putting it in its proper place. Knowing the correct nature of a tree, of a seed, of a rock, of an atom, an electron, of a star. Knowing the nature of something is the first step to putting it in its proper place. And we cut ourselves off from the one who knows its, its exact nature. Proverbs 27 says, Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds, for wealth is not forever and not even a crown lasts a lifetime. And so we just don't know it all, you know? And we cut ourselves off from God by choosing to go our own way. Not only that, but our foresight is severely limited. We can adopt solutions to problems here and today that we think are really great, but they might be horrible like 50 years down the road. Plastic, that was meant, that, when they had first invented plastic, they were like, Wow, look at this. We just took all the excess like stuff that we don't use in our in our vehicles, all this waste from crude oil, and we convert it into life-saving stuff. And now it's like we can't imagine a world without plastic. You are all sitting on plastic right now. And plastic it has been so beneficial, but but it hasn't been perfect. If you look at the recycling in our world right now, 80% of your plastic goes to third world countries. It used to go to China where they had converted into um, other materials, but now China isn't buying it and it's going to countries like Malaysia and other countries where it's just piling up and they don't know how, what to do with it. They don't know how, they can't sort it. All of this stuff, we can think of solutions to problems in our world, but our foresight is so limited. There's a reason for this. Alvin Weinberg, um, he's a, nine, a nuclear physicist, he said in 1972, um, there's this, Thing called trans science. And trans science is used to describe the study of problems that are too large, too diffuse, too rare, or long term to be resolved by any scientific means. 
that there are so many problems in our world, even big data, we think about all the data we collect now, even big data won't solve because all that data depends on models. And all those models are dependent on assumptions of people who build the models. Our foresight, it is just so limited. He, he once said that if you wanted to make a study to figure out if your phone is giving, really giving you radiation poisoning, you would have to uh, do a study with 8 billion mice. And no study is going to be with 8 billion mice, okay? Um, so there's that. There's also we seek to diminish human flourishing. That's another consequence, another reason why um, all of this has, has become so difficult is that there are elements in our culture and society right to now today that seek to diminish human flourishing. And this is getting the wrong order. God, he, he told us to rule over creation, but some people today look at how much we've messed up and said, you know what? This order is wrong. We must elevate all of creation to being equal with human beings. I'm not going to pick on it too much, but one day I thought, why do we call it the Animal Humane Society? Like, I get it. We need to care for animals. We care for them. We need to, like, treat them well. But, oh, the word humane is in the name of the organization Animal Humane Society. And what does Jesus say? He says two things. He says a person is worth far more than sheep. Matthew 12, 12. And Matthew 10, 31 you are worth far more than many sparrows. If I had a decision in front of me about, let's say Nuggets is running in the street and my wife starts having a medical emergency, you better believe it, I'm letting Nuggets go. And I'm, my attention is on my wife. It's on Dean. I'm going to, oh, okay, let's call 911. Let's, whatever, Nuggets, you're going. Now, it's between Nuggets, our Chihuahua, and Marley, our Beagle. Of course, we're picking Nuggets every day. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Marley's a, a pest uh, to some degree. <laughs> He's got an attitude. Um, but if it's between my wife and Nuggets, like, I'm picking, I'm picking my wife every day, and that's right. That is right. Uh, in the last year, they had a, a sermon at this place called Union Theological Seminary, and it was a time to confess your sins to plants. And there was this news story. Um, it was broke out. I think we have a we might have a picture of it, but it says, disaster at Union Seminary as giant, angry, carnivorous plant does not accept students' apologies. This is from the Babylon Bee, so it's not real. But, but like we, some people, there's this movement to elevate the status of creation as being something that we must apologize to, as opposed to, to God and to other people. There's a deification of creation going on in today's culture that is out of balance with God's order in his design. And we think that people are the problem. And it's because we've seen the problem out there and we have the wrong solution, so we take this guilty stick and we say, bad, bad people, bad. We just need less of us. And by doing this, we de-emphasize the command to fill the earth, to multiply, to fill the earth with God's image. The last way that this has affected us is that we use God's creation for personal gain. And historically, we just know this is true. We can look at American history and see how companies, um, some of them, with the knowledge that this was wrong and the harmful effects of it, 
sometimes with the knowledge that it was having harmful effects, would dump chemicals into lakes, ponds, rivers, ecosystems, affecting tons of people. And the reason is because um, just personal gain. Now, sometimes we can do things in unintentional consequences, but it has been proven without a doubt. There have been companies that just have done things, and people have done things for personal gain out of misuse of God's creation. Today, what we could call this is called the NIMBY effect, N-I-M-B-Y, not in my backyard. And the NIMBY effect, it is something that has to do with our sinful nature. The, the NIMBY effect, it's, it's coined among a lot of you uh, environmentalists and stuff like that. And so we're just, I'm kind of speaking your language tonight uh, with that. But at the root of the NIMBY effect is sin. It says, I don't want responsibility. I want as, as little responsibility as possible. I love getting all the benefits of our culture and our society, but I don't want to think about any of the consequences. So yeah, let's get the power, let's get energy, let's get all that. But you know, so, as long as I don't have to even think about how it happens, that's all right with me. That's the, the essence of the NIMBY effect. It, it takes our actions and tries to divorce it from sometimes what the consequences are. And I did this a lot growing up. I would be told to clean my room and I'd take everything and I'd shove it under the bed. Great, I don't have to deal with it. I, my room is clean. I can go do what I want now and I don't have to deal with the effects of my messiness. Um, and maybe you've experienced this in group projects. We all love group projects, right? No, we don't. We hate group projects. We're like, I always feel like I'm doing all the work in, in group projects and other people are just kind of sloughing or maybe you are the one who's sloughing on your group projects. But, um, you know, like we don't take responsibility. That's what sin, the essence of it is. It's, it's trying to limit my responsibility for things. Do you dump your dishes in the sink and leave them with your roommates? Like that, that is the essence of what sin is trying to accomplish. It's, it's, it wants to divorce consequences and responsibility from your life. Or like, you know, neglecting doing chores in your household. <laughs> like you're making everyone else experience the consequences of your not cleaning. Um, and the thing though is that if this is your approach to life in menial things, in things that are like, well, whatever, it's just like, a dish, it's just a, a thing. This is probably your approach in your relationships as well. When you think about your relationships, do you use relationships to establish status? Do you use relationships for what you get out of them? It's the same thing. It's looking to see what can I get with as little of what I can give. I don't want to take responsibility in a friendship, so I'm just going to see how much I can get from this person. Because a friendship would mean I'd have to give something, and I'd have to be kind of responsible to some degree. And when we do this, we have maybe the right order in creation, like, yeah, we rule over creation, but we have the wrong relationship with it. We have the right order sometimes, but the wrong relationship to the creation. And we see that on the cross, Jesus, he was radically different than all of this. He not only establishes right order in dominion, but also right relationship. And he assumes responsibility when it's our nature to buck responsibility. 
He seeks human flourishing at his own expense on the cross. And so what we see is that dominion, it will be actualized by the kindest man ever. Dominion, it will be actualized by the kindest man ever. You remember that word for rule? What's the word for rule? Rada. yeah. There was a profession in ancient Israel that embodied Rada. And the profession was called Ra'ah. So the Ra'ah would Ra'ah the sheep, the shepherd. The word for shepherd, it is so similar to the word for rule that you could look at shepherds and you could say, this is what it looks like. This is the picture. When you look through the Bible and you see the picture of a shepherd, this is what the rule and dominion of mankind is to look like, like a shepherd. Jesus, he said that he's the good shepherd. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's the hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. And Jesus, he takes responsibility for your fault. He was a perfect man, perfect in every way, did not have to take responsibility for anything, but on the cross, he became sin. He became your sin. So you could go free, so you could be forgiven. And if you are not a sheep in his pen, you might be a wolf. And he is going to one day parse out all the sheep and the wolves, and the sheep will be his, and they'll be with him forever. And Jesus, he, he takes responsibility for them. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. He has the proper hierarchy, order in relationship of dominion, and he has the proper relationship of service. He takes dominion with proper order and relationship. If you think about it, what's the most calming passage in the Old Testament? It's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Friends, this is the kind of dominion that we are to have over the whole earth. That we are to have this kind of dominion with the picture of a shepherd. And Jesus, he has been given dominion over all. It was prophesied in Daniel. It said, he was given dominion and glory in a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And he is going to reign forever. And in his kingdom, he is going to set right every thorn and thistle. In Isaiah 11, it says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together. And a child will lead them the cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat like cattle. Will eat straw like cattle. Sorry, the lion will not eat cattle. 
An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. And in that day, the knowledge of the Lord will fill every nook and cranny. We will again know him perfectly, the one who knows everything perfectly, And he is going to set right every thorn and thistle in all of creation. And not only that, but God's creation, we are going to get to rule with him. In Romans 8, it says, For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's people. And creation, all of creation, it says in Romans 8, is awaiting the day when there will be perfect dominion. Creation wants Christians to subdue it. That would be my thesis behind Romans 8, is that creation, the world, it wants Christians to to subdue it like a shepherd. And that we would have that mentality in all of our relationships. And that with a right relationship with God, we would again be able to exercise right relationships with each other and right relationships with the world that he made. A few things I want to share with you. You know, what, if you think about this, there's dominion. There's so many aspects. You can think about the world. You can think about your relationships. Um, here's a few things I'd encourage you to do, okay? First, develop a servant's heart. Develop a servant's heart. The heart of the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I would encourage you, look to Jesus. See what he's done. See how he's bent down from heaven to make you great. It says the greatest of all must become a servant of all or a slave in some, some passages. And I would encourage you, like, don't only think about order, but think about your relationship. Are you a servant? Develop the heart of a, uh, the heart of a servant. Liberal education, the word liberal means freedom. And Christian liberal education, as it was meant to be, was freedom from egotism, freedom from the self, so that you can serve humanity. Today, liberal education is the exact opposite of that. It is freedom of the self, freedom to be yourself, freedom to impose your definitions upon the world. And so the second thing I encourage you to do is study hard. A liberal education helps you to exercise dominion through career preparation. There's this guy, his name is Gene C. Font Jr. Um, He wrote a really kind of little book. Uh, He runs a Christian college, um, but he wrote a really little book about a Christian liberal education. I'd encourage you to read it. Um, He says, general revelation is a theological mandate to learn the world's broad secrets as a specific opportunity to learn about its creator. To learn about God, we must undertake research into his creation from the humans who have a specific form of dominion over the world to the animals, plants, and every elements that fill every nook and cranny of the universe. And so whether you be stu- you know, you're studying English, language, economics, um, 
science, biology, chemistry, study hard. Know that what you are studying, you are studying the nature of a thing. And you want to bring it into proper relationship to God, proper relationship for human flourishing. Creation longs for to be ruled by God's people. The third thing I encourage you to do, and I wish I had a whole lot more time to talk about this, the third thing I encourage you to do is plant churches. Plant churches. The dominion command, it is comes to crystal clarity for the New Testament believer in the Great Commission. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And the one who's been given a dominion, the one who has authority over all, has told you, go make disciples. And he's the shepherd. It's so amazing that he is the one who has this kind of authority, and, he, and he's a shepherd. We should love the fact that he's the one who has all, all authority to tell us to do something like this. And planting churches is one of the greatest ways that you can uh, advance the Great Commission. And whether it be as a goer to go plant a church or a sender, you know, we need all. You know, we need churches that are intentional to go and plant other churches if we want to reach this world. Gene C. Font, this is how he connects your education to planting churches. This is so important. You're all college students. I want you to pay attention to this. It says, indeed, as Western culture is moving into a post-Christian era where the dominant worldviews of the past millennium become more implicit and suspect, a paradigm is emerging that closely resembles a Christianity of the first century rather than the 19th. A distinctively Christian version of liberal learning will be crucial to the success of these new strategies. Fewer career missionaries with theological degrees from seminaries will be commissioned by denominational agencies. Rather, engineers and chemists will, be t will take positions with corporations that will position them in regions where there is little gospel platform. Church planters will target unreached areas armed with both theological education and practical platforms where they, will, where they will run coffee shops, manage art agencies, and coach athletics while building relationships that may lead to spiritual transformation in the context of local church fellowships. And we live in Iowa. We live in a very conservative area. This is more true on the coasts. I would say we have another 20 years here in Iowa where we can probably continue to plant churches with, with people who are in the traditional way. But if you try to go east, if you try to go somewhere else, this becomes more prevalent, that you excel in a career to serve humanity, to glorify God, and to use it as an opportunity for gospel witness in planting churches in unreached areas. And so I would encourage you, think about what, is it, what does God want for my life? I would hope that these would be values that you could apply into your life as you move forward. So why don't we pray um, and thank God for this time. God, thank you so much um, that you are good to us, that you are a, a good shepherd. God, that you deal with us according to our frame that you know. Um, God, that you laid your life down for us. God, what a, what a crazy thing that a shepherd dies for his sheep that a king dies for his people to advance his kingdom. God, help us to embrace that heart 
to reach this world. God, to see people come to know you. God, to live properly in the world that you've made, that the world would know you. In your name we pray. Amen. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.